thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would uh, bless this time together. God, that you would speak um, so much. Um, I believe you have to say through this chapter and yet so little time. God, I pray that you would just hammer home uh, the points that you want us to, to take from this. And you would also give us hearts to to dive even deeper, knowing that there's there's so much more. And, uh, and an hour of any of your word doesn't really do it justice. You have so much meaning behind even one word. God, so I pray that you would help us to make the most of this and uh, your spirit would just teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be in Genesis chapter 41, uh, continuing our study through Genesis, specifically the story of Joseph. Okay, if you remember, we met Joseph a few chapters back when he was this child that was very favored but knew about it. He was entitled. His brothers hated him for the sheer fact that he was favored. So his brothers, they throw him in a pit, then they sell him into slavery, and Joseph becomes ultimately a slave in Egypt. Now, while Joseph is a slave in Egypt, he's specifically under a certain man named Potiphar. And we saw how he was faithful and God continued to bless him. But Potiphar's wife had a little thing for Joseph, right? And Potiphar's wife, she tried to seduce him time and time again. And constantly he practiced self-control and faithfulness. And he denied uh, the seduction of Potiphar's wife. He did right. But then we see he's falsely accused and then thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he gains favor from God and man once again. And he runs into these two men who he had compassion on, specifically this butler and this baker. And they have these dreams and he interprets these dreams. And we see these dreams end up coming true. Well, one of the things that Joseph asked the butler was, hey, please remember me when you are restored back to your position in Egypt. Remember me and tell Pharaoh that I've been in prison. All of these things have happened to me and I've been falsely accused. Please get me out of here. And what happened? The butler forgot about him. So now we see two years are going to go by between when the butler was released and the section that we're at here in Genesis chapter 41. See, Joseph, he's gone through a lot as we just discussed. And we know we've mentioned how God has been making his man. He's been molding his man. He's been preparing Joseph to be the leader that he's called him to be. And if you remember the very first teaching about Joseph, we labeled him as the entitled child. And what God, if anything, was trying to get across to him, was trying to teach him was this character quality of humility. See, before God exalts us, he must humble us. And that's exactly what he does here with Joseph, bringing me to the title of this teaching. Humility comes before exaltation. Humility 
comes before exaltation. Jesus said precisely this in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, the context he's speaking about leaders, he's speaking about specifically the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, and he has an important message to get across to the disciples, warning them about this pride that can set in with leadership. And he says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God will humble the proud. He'll give grace to the humble. We've heard in other words, but we see when we humble ourselves, when we learn humility, that's when God will exalt us. And finally, in Joseph's story in this chapter, Joseph, he's going to be exalted. He's learned the lessons that God wanted to teach him, specifically attaining this character quality of humility. And now God is ready to put him in this leadership position. See, if God exalts us too early, if he puts us in a position of power or authority or leadership too early, then what can set in? Pride can set in. And we can end up convincing ourselves that we had something to do with it, that we got ourselves to that place where God has called us to be. But pride, pride is the opposite of the Lord and pride is the root of all evil. We see an example of this in First Timothy chapter five, First Timothy chapter five, specifically in regards to leadership and being put in this position too early. First Timothy chapter five, verse 22, it says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in another in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident. Um, there was something else that I was specifically looking for, but what Paul is communicating in Timothy to Timothy is uh, not to lay hands on someone too quickly. Don't exalt someone into that leadership position too quickly. Uh, in another scripture, it says, uh, otherwise you give place to the devil. And this is basically what happened to the devil with his power. It led to pride and it led to him exalting himself above God, at least attempting to. And what God had to do with Satan was humble him. God, he doesn't want to do that with Joseph. So he does the opposite. He teaches him humility. As soon as he sees that pride in him at 17 years old, he humbles him in so many different ways, all in an effort to, again, produce that character in him to raise him up to be the humble leader that he's called him to be God wants humble leaders. And we'll see in this chapter, Genesis chapter 41, that God has taught Joseph this lesson. And now it's Joseph's opportunity to be placed in this position of leadership because now, now he's ready. Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 1 it says, Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. 
and behold, he stood by the river. So two whole years have passed, as I said, since he interpreted the butler and the baker's dreams. Now, that's a pretty significant amount of time. Well, in all reality, it's been 13 years since Joseph was initially uh, sold into slavery at 17. We'll see in this chapter that he's 30 years old. And we can look at this and be like, God, why so long? Two more years? But God's timing is perfect. And he had a specific purpose in why he left Joseph there in prison. And it was for this purpose. So that he would have an opportunity to be brought before Pharaoh. And literally bring salvation to the world in a sense. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 41. This dream Pharaoh had, look, it's described... Uh, picking it up in verse 2. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the un- ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine looking fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. And he slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, uh, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh woke, and indeed it was a dream. So Pharaoh has these specific dreams and they're very similar. And we'll get into those a little bit later. But the interesting thing is that these first dreams had to do with cows. Now, the cow was the emblem of Isis, who was the god of fertility. And we see Osiris, uh, Isis's brother, Osiris, another god in Egypt. He was often depicted as a bull with seven other cows around him. And Osiris, he was one of the great gods of Egypt. He was the god of vegetation and the netherworld and so many other things. Okay, then they have the son Horus. It's a whole other thing. You can study it. It's pretty interesting. But the point of the matter is, is God's using a dream uh, to almost communicate to Pharaoh that his gods ain't helping him out in this one. That, that, that his gods ultimately are powerless over the circumstances and situations that are going to happen because God, the real God, Yahweh, is the one in control. Genesis chapter 41, verse 8. We have 57 verses to get through tonight. We will get through them. Um, <laughs> we just got to go kind of fast. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Now he goes to these magicians. There was a specific God called thought, T-H-O-T, that was believed to have the power to interpret dreams. It appears that thought had nothing to say as far as these dreams were concerned. He had no interpretation through these magicians. But what Pharaoh is doing is he's going to these worldly magicians to find the answers that he's looking for. 
It's a picture of us and how so often we can find ourselves in this place where we're seeking all these answers in the world. We go to the world for answers. We go to the world for the meaning of life and all these different things that we want to attain. But eventually we find out that the, the world doesn't have the answers that we're looking for. Only the Lord has the answers. And just like in this case, these worldly men, they don't have the answers that Pharaoh is looking for. Only God has the answers. Ultimately, God is the answer. And he says, if we seek him with our whole hearts, we will find him. So often we look for answers elsewhere or God gives us the answer and we don't like the answer that we hear, but it's not going to change. He's always going to be the answer. If we seek him, we'll find him. We might not always like what we find with the answer that he gives us, but it's the truth. And that's what God provides for us. The uh, magicians here, they have no truth to give. They actually have nothing to say. So Pharaoh, he has to look elsewhere. Genesis chapter 41, verse 9. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, I remember my faults this day. Two years later, butler, really? (laughs) In all sincerity, likely God had reminded him. God likely reminded the butler uh, about Joseph and how he's been in prison for those last two years. And it's kind of the butler's fault. But I want to point out something here. The butler, he recognizes that he was wrong and he admits it. Imagine if the butler was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that dude, Joseph, and he might have the answer, but I don't want to say anything because I've left this guy in prison for the last two years. I don't want him to come back and say whatever to me or rebuke me for leaving him there for so long. No, in humility, the butler not only realizes realizes that he's wrong, but he confesses that he's wrong. It's one thing to realize that you're wrong. It's another thing to admit it. When you're wrong, do you admit that you're wrong? When you mess up, do you make, when you make a mistake, uh, when you have an argument with your significant other or your child or whatever, do you always try to be the person that says, I'm always right. I'm never wrong. Or, I know I'm wrong, but I'm not going to admit it. I don't have the humility to communicate the fact that I know that I'm wrong, but that's what it takes. It takes just that. It takes humility to not only recognize that we're wrong, but to admit that we're wrong. Or are you the type of person that's just always right? Uh, Probably not. So in that case, when we recognize that we've done something wrong, just as Butler did, I remember my faults this day. Admit it, fess up, regardless of the consequences. And as we'll see, there's no consequences for the Butler. Genesis chapter 41, verse 10. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night. He, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. 
He restored me to my office and he hanged him. So basically, uh, as we see here, the butler is just telling Pharaoh what had happened two years ago in the prison, how this young Hebrew man was able to interpret these dreams and the, his interpretations were right on. They were accurate. They were fulfilled exactly how he said. Genesis chapter 41, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. What's Joseph doing here? He's preparing. He's preparing himself to meet his king. Literally, that's what he's doing. He's preparing himself. He's shaving. He's changing his clothing. He's making sure his appearance is appropriate to face the king. Are you prepared to face your king? Because the Bible speaks clearly to us and we learn this lesson from Joseph and elsewhere that we have to be prepared. We have to constantly have the mindset that he's coming and he could be coming any moment. We see this lesson reiterated in Matthew chapter 25. There's this parable uh, about these 10 virgins that Jesus communicates. And it's interesting because he's communicating this right after, after he talks about the end times in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, in light of your knowledge of the end, he tells us a story of how we should approach that, how we should respond to that. If you look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, It says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. There's a lot to this story. I'm not going to get into it. Just making the point. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took the oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go gather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who are ready went in, went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We see the five foolish virgins, they weren't prepared. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. But we see that they they weren't prepared to meet their king. They weren't prepared to meet the bridegroom. And because they weren't prepared, he says, I never knew you. They don't get invited or they're not allowed to come into the wedding. What's the point? He says, you don't know when the son of man is coming. Be prepared. Live every day as if it's the day that he is going to come. What will he find us doing when he comes? Will he find us being faithful and prepared, shaven, nice clothes clothes on? No, he doesn't care about that. 
It's not like that. But spiritually, are we walking in the word? Are we living an honorable life? When he finds us, will he say, enter into your joy, my good and faithful servant? See, Joseph, he took this seriously, being brought before the king. He, he prepared to meet his king. Genesis chapter 41, verse 15 And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had had a dream and there was no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. This is great. We see this is a similar response to the response he had to the butler and baker. Ultimately, he's responding in humility and he's saying God has the interpretation for you if you recall back in uh, Genesis 37 these original dreams that Joseph had what did he do when he had these dreams likely from the Lord because they're fulfilled what did he do he boasted about himself he exalted himself you guys are going to bow down before me because that's what my dream said We see a different man here. He doesn't have that entitlement. He doesn't have that pride. He's not exalting himself like he did previously at 17 years old in regards to his own dreams. No, he's exalting God, which brings me to the first of five points. Exalt God, not yourself. Exalt God, not yourself. Similar to something that we talked about last week, but it's coming up again. So we're talking about it again. See, Joseph, he was giving the glory to God. He didn't point to himself. In humility, he points to God. Do you do the things that you do to make a name for yourself or to exalt the name of God? See, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus calls to be salt and light. And he says to the disciples, to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Yeah, be a light, but be a light that's pointing back to the glory of God, not your own light. When we do things, we should do things as unto the Lord. That's what Colossians 3.23 tells us. Everything that we do should be as unto the Lord. Not to make a name for ourselves, but to exalt His name. And that's what Joseph does. He's exalting the name of the Lord. He's also exalting the abilities of the Lord. Look at this confidence. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He's confident in what God will do. Not God might have something to say. He was, no, no. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. That's so much confidence in his God. Are you that confident in the ability of your God? He was in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulations. Joseph was still confident in God's abilities. Genesis chapter 41, verse 17 Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known they had eaten them up. 
for they were just as ugly as the beginning. So I awoke. Also, I saw my dream and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So Pharaoh's just reiterating the dream. He's given us a little more detail in this dream. But he's just telling Joseph basically what had happened. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. God's revealing to Pharaoh what he's about to do. God does that. God reveals not just to Pharaoh, not just to Joseph, but to us what he's about to do. God will reveal to us what he's about to do. Yeah, we already have the end. We have revelation amongst other scriptures that tell us what's going to happen. But God will often reveal to you, even in your own life, what he's about to do if you're looking for it. If you're praying for it, if you're seeking him in the word for it, he will occasionally give you those little glimpses, those little tastes, those little ideas of what's going to happen in the future. But are you asking him for that? Look at verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I had spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So Joseph, right off the bat, he knows the interpretation. God reveals the interpretation to him. He says, hey, these these fat cows and this fat grain, it represents seven years of plenty. Okay, Only through the Lord would he know that it's seven years. We just see the number seven. But God gives him the truth of what's about to happen. He says, yes, seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. Now, the seven years of famine that we see here in Genesis is very similar and parallels to the seven year tribulation. It's referred to in Jeremiah chapter 30 as Jacob's trouble. And this is really cool, really interesting. When you study the book of Revelation and you see God's heart behind the tribulation, at first glance, you can think, man, God, you're mean. You're pouring all this wrath on all these people. What's your deal? But when you compare scripture to scripture and you see the full context, one of the main reasons why God has the tribulation come upon all the earth is to get the attention of the Israelites. Because through the seven year tribulation, it says a third of the Jews will be saved. A third of the Israelites will come to know and recognize the Messiah through the tribulation. What happens with the famine? After seven years of famine, who's restored? Israel. All of all of Joseph's family members, all of his brothers, his father are restored back to him in relationship, but are saved through the famine. 
The famine is the very thing that God uses in the lives of the Israelites to bring them back to Joseph and ultimately bring them salvation in Egypt. Just as Jesus does with the seven year tribulation, it's to get the attention of his beloved people, the nation of Israel, so that they might be saved before his second coming. Genesis chapter 41 Verse 30, I want to reread that last, uh, that second part of verse 30. It says, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following for it will be very severe. The famine is going to be so severe that the years of plenty will simply be forgotten. Have you ever gone through such severe years of famine that you forget the years of plenty? Meaning you've gone through such a hard time. Maybe it's now a difficult time in your life and you're just going through it. You're so in the midst of it. It's so bad that you forget all the good things that God's done for you. You forget the years of plenty. You forget how good things used to be. That's what happens when bad things arise in our lives. Sometimes we allow the bad times to negate the good times. But even in the midst of the bad times, we have to remember the good times because likely there's good times right around the corner. And that's what we see here in this text. Even after the famine, God's going to use it to bring restoration in a lot of different ways. Genesis chapter 41 Verse 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. See, God gave Pharaoh, as we saw, two dreams to establish one important truth, meaning he was really trying to get the message across to Pharaoh. Does this ever happen to you in your life? Maybe it's your devotions, maybe it's a teaching, maybe it's through a friend, but the same topic just keeps coming up, coming up, coming up. Maybe it's a word, maybe it's like sacrifice or humility or something of that nature. And this word just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Look, God does that for a reason. He he does these things, he repeats himself, he tries to communicate the same message in different ways to get, to get those truths across to us. If it's coming up time and time again, this is often how the Lord will speak to me. The same thing comes up a few times in a week and I'm like, okay, dummy, you better get it this time. He's trying to get something across. He's trying to communicate to us. And sometimes he has to communicate more than once just so that we know it's from him. And he says, look, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Again, confident in God's ability, knowing that this dream was from the Lord. It's going to be fulfilled exactly how he interpreted it. Genesis chapter 41, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. This is the advice he's given Pharaoh and set him over the land of Egypt Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt 
in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Look at what Joseph does here. He doesn't only interpret the dream. He comes up with a solution. He's using the gift of administration to develop this detailed plan that's going to help Egypt. And we'll see all the world get through this famine. I love this about Joseph. See, it's one thing to recognize a problem, to know that there's an issue that's about to arise. But it's another thing to come up with a solution, which brings me to the second point. Don't just point to the problem. Be part of the solution. Don't just point to the problem. Be part of the solution. Joseph could have just interpreted the dream and said, well, you're done. (laughs) And Egypt, we're all going to die. No, he doesn't do that. He says this horrible famine's about to happen, but we have the seven years of plenty. So, so here's the solution that he comes up with at the top of his head to help them make it through the famine. Now, People are really good at pointing out problems, right? We're all really good at pro- pointing out problems, right? You can see problems in other people. You can see problems in me. You can pre- see problems in the church. You can see problems everywhere. But there are a lot more people that are good at pointing out problems and a lot fewer people that are part of the solution. And we can complain about things and not like how certain things are, but pointing out problems doesn't solve the problem. We have to have this mindset, though. If I'm going to mention a problem, if I'm going to point this thing out, I'm also pointing to a solution. We see Jesus do the same thing time and time again. One example is in John chapter four, as he has this encounter with the Samaritan woman who was constantly falling into sexual sin. He doesn't just point out the problem. He doesn't just call out her sin and say, hey, yeah, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. He doesn't just point out her sin. He points her to the solution. The solution is worship god in spirit and in truth it's one thing it's easy to point out problems but if we can't point out the solution then what's the point of pointing out problems jesus uh, sorry joseph he points out the problem then he comes up with this amazing solution But not only does he give the advice and come up with the solution, not only was he willing to help make the solution happen, he was also able to make this happen. Genesis chapter 41, verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this? a man in whom is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and as much as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. See, Joseph, he not only interprets the dream, he came up with this this wise solution, and he also had the ability to make it happen. This right here is the first time in verse 38 that we see someone being filled with the Spirit of God. This is the first time that it's mentioned in 
the Bible. Joseph was literally empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish a lot of the things that God had him accomplish. And we see the gift of administration there and wisdom amongst these other things, but the Spirit of God had filled him and empowered him to accomplish these things. Here's another interesting fact. There's so many parallels to Jesus uh, in this chapter, and we'll go through some of them. When you look at Joseph's life, there's like 40 different connections between Joseph's story and Jesus. It's it's profound. I've been mentioning some of them, but there's there's so much more. But we see here, just as he was filled with the Spirit of God, uh, that's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. That's what the Messiah means. Jesus was the anointed one. He had the Spirit of God, okay? We know he was even more than that, but that's what that title means. Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God. See, God was using Joseph to fulfill his ultimate plan. He was using him. And God will use us. See, God works through men's works on earth. God uses men. God uses us. God uses the body of Christ to put his spirit in, to pour out his spirit on to accomplish his work here on earth. That's what he does with Joseph. God works through people. He uses us because he lives inside of us. And that's what he's doing with Joseph. He's empowering him. And look at what Pharaoh says about him. He says, there is no one, verse 39, as discerning and as wise as you. (laughs) This is pretty profound. This is the first encounter that he ever has with Pharaoh. And these are the words that Pharaoh communicates to him. Dude, you're the most discerning. You're the wisest man I've ever met. Right off the bat. We read what happened in the text. But seriously, to have this impression uh, from a person that instantly, man, Joseph was something special. He was someone very special. And it was all attributed to The power of God, the filling of the spirit. Genesis chapter 41, verse 40. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring off his hand and put it in Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. See, Pharaoh, after one encounter with Joseph, so profoundly empowered by the spirit, he makes him ruler over his whole kingdom. He says, only in regards to the throne, am I greater than you? That's what Pharaoh says. Literally, Joseph is at the right hand of the king. He's at the right hand of Pharaoh, just like Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Look what else they say here. There's a bunch of connections here. They say to him, uh, look at verse 43, bow the knee. 
bow the knee. See, all authority was given to Joseph just as all authority was given to Jesus Christ. They bow before him. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father gave God the Son, Jesus Christ, all authority and all one day will recognize that he is authority and every creature will bow before him. The world will see is coming to Joseph. They're directed to bow to him. He's their authority. And not only that, look back at verse 44. It says, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's serious authority. That's serious power. He says, no man shall do anything without you. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15, verse 5? Without me, you can do nothing. So many connections, so many parallels, how Joseph is indeed a type of Christ and how God is giving us this story here in Genesis to give us a little glimpse of what Jesus was going to come and do. Genesis chapter 41 Verse 45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Pania, and he gave him, it sounds like me, kind of, Pania. It's close, right? And he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this Egyptian name means. Um, there's some Jewish tradition that has uh, a meaning uh, for every single letter that was given to Joseph in his name, but we can't be certain about that, and it's likely just tradition and not a reality. Uh, probably the most common name that I found in my studies uh, was this. Uh, God speaks and he lives. That that was the name that was given Joseph, which makes a lot of sense because God spoke through Joseph to interpret the dream. But God lives, meaning representing the life, the preservation that was brought to Egypt through this famine and the interpretation that was given to him. But there's nothing solid for sure that we know the exact meaning. And so he gives them this wife. He gives them this wife, Asenath. This wife is what? She's a Gentile. Did Christ not have a Gentile bride? The church, right? Yeah, there's Jews in there. But the the bride of Christ, we look at this Gentile bride that was given to Joseph just how Jesus, just as Jesus had a Gentile bride, us. Genesis chapter 41, verse 46 Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now we see right here that Joseph's 30 years old, same age as Christ when Christ started his ministry. 
Now, thinking back, there's been 13 years, right, since he was captured, since he was sold into slavery. So God has been taking Joseph through this 13-year leadership program. That's intense. That's tough. When you look at what he walked through, I wouldn't want to go through that. But that's what God needed to do. Why? Because God, again, was producing character in him. In character, it takes time to produce. Which brings me to the third point. Character takes time. Character takes time. Now, God can do instant, uh, miraculous changes of heart uh, in so many different areas. But we see throughout Scripture, often it's, it's a process. There's still kinks that he's working out within us. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, it, it gives us an example of that. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character. So God, he takes us along this journey through this process to produce character in us, and it takes some time. Sometimes we get into this mindset where we're struggling with this specific sin, and we think, I might as well give up. It's never going to change. I'm always going to struggle with this. Don't be so certain about that because God may maybe he's changed a lot of your heart condition and uh, ridded you purged you of certain sins. But 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 maybe for for the rest of them, it's going to take time. It's going to be a process. It took 13 years for God to purge Joseph of his pride and entitlement. Now, this is so important. Because Joseph, he, he had so many gifts, right? We see him from the very beginning, so much favor from from his earthly father and his heavenly father. We see him operating in so many different gifts. See, Joseph always had the gifts to be the leader that God had called him to be, but he didn't have the character to match up. There's a saying from an old pastor of mine. I love this verse. He says, not verse, quote, don't let your gifts take you to where your character can't keep you. Don't let your gifts take you to where your character can't keep you. And it's such a, a, a biblical thing. God didn't want um, Joseph to, to step into leadership and fall short. No, he wanted to allow his character to be built up to align with his giftings. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 47. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Not only does Joseph interpret the dream, come up with the solution, have the ability to fulfill the solution, he does it. He says it and he does it. He's a man of his word. And we see this character quality in Joseph. He's intentional about planning for the future. He's taking what he has, what God blesses him with in the present, and he's investing in his future. He's a diligent planner, and the whole world is going to prosper because of his planning. Fourth point, the plans of the diligent prosper. The plans of the diligent prosper. Those aren't my words. Those are the Lord's words. It's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5. It says just that. In other words, depending on your translation, the plans of the diligent prosper. 
Do you plan for your future? Do you consider your future, both practically and spiritually? We see throughout Scripture that it's important to God that we would plan for our future, that we would look at the present and consider the future. There's this uh, great parable uh, in Luke chapter 16 of this unjust steward. And basically this steward, he was dealing unjustly. That's why he's called the unjust steward, uh, with his master. And he was, he was, uh, he was giving him less than what he deserves. So the master finds out that the steward's been dealing unjustly. And Jesus is telling this story. Uh, so he tells him, you're going to be fired. I got to let you go. And so what the unjust steward does is he starts meeting with different people that owed his master money and he started giving them discounts, like cutting it in half, cutting percentages off of them. And he's still the unjust steward. But Jesus commends him. Jesus commends him. Why? He says, because you've dealt shrewdly. And he says, the sons of this world are more uh, inclined to plan for their future than the sons of the kingdom. He says, the, the world's always planning for their future. But disciples, have you considered your future? And he's not just talking practically, he's talking spiritually. He's talking about investing, as we've discussed before, in your heavenly inheritance. See, God, he wants us to be faithful with the things that we have, be good stewards of the things that we have, both practically and spiritually, and use those things considering our future, invest them into our future. Joseph, that's what he does. He takes the abundance that he has now and he invests it in the future so that it's there when there's a need. Genesis chapter 41, verse 49. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. So he's gathering all this grain. He's gathering so much. And Joseph, the administrator, he's like, I can't even count it anymore. There's so much abundance. He just stops counting. It speaks of the magnificent blessing from the Lord. Now, remember, Joseph's plan was to take 20% of the grain, right? Uh, it's believed in that culture uh, that Pharaoh would typically take 10%. He would take 10% of the grain, 10% of the earnings. That was the, the tax from the people to Pharaoh. So basically what Joseph is doing is he's doubling it. Now he's taking 20% away from the people all because he knows exactly what was going to happen. Genesis chapter 41. Verse 50. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. He's going to name the second one Ephraim. Now, Manasseh and Ephraim, they, they're not Egyptian names, they're Hebrew names. See, though Joseph forgot all his toil, he didn't forget where he came from. He knew he was a Hebrew. He remembered his family and he had a desire to keep that lineage going. 
But he does, though. I love this. It says he, he, Manasseh, he was so blessed by everything that was happening in his life and these two sons that he received that he forgot all the toil that had happened since he had left his father's house. So many things went wrong for Joseph, yet he can look back and say, the blessings are so great now, I almost forget about how difficult the, the toil was. See, God's goodness outweighs any toil. God's goodness outweighs any hardship, any difficulty we may ever face. And that's what Joseph's saying here. Hey, I've been so blessed by God that the toil, it's as if it's forgotten. Now, I don't know if Joseph had this mentality the whole time. If Joseph was like, oh, as he's going through the toil, as he's thrown into prison, as he's accused falsely, as he's betrayed by his brothers, that he's like, uh, oh, you know, you live and you learn. I forgive you. I forget. It's no worries. Probably not. It, it took him to the end of the storm for him to realize the goodness of God. See, we don't usually see the value of a storm until it's calmed, until it's over, until it's ended. We see that in Mark chapter 4 and other scriptures as well. Jesus has this encounter with the disciples where they're on a boat and he's sleeping and there's this great storm and the disciples, they think that they're going to die and they're afraid of the storm. They say, Lord, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus is sleeping and he wakes up. He says, you have a little faith. He rebukes the winds and the waves. He calms the storm and the disciples go from a fear of the storm to a fear of the Lord. And they recognize his deity, that he is the son of God. See, Jesus used the storm to reveal his glory. That's what he's doing here. God is is using these hardships, these trials to reveal his glory, to reveal his goodness. See, Sometimes the Lord uses storms to reveal something to us, and other times he uses storms to produce something in us, which we'll see in the very next verse. Genesis chapter 41, verse 52, just about then. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, affliction, affliction produces fruit, which is the fifth point. Affliction produces fruit. God used Joseph's affliction to produce fruit, not just fruit for him, but fruit in him, character. It's Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. Isaiah 48. Verse 10, he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. The Lord refines us through affliction. He purges us through suffering. Never something that we look forward to, but we recognize as believers it's necessary for our growth. There was a time uh, when I was in El Salvador, um, 
And we were coming back from a mission trip to Belize. And we were driving through, we took a bus, we were driving through Guatemala, and one of the, the girls, some of you met her and know her, her name's Diana, um, she has a, a Haitian passport. So <laughs> as we're entering into El Salvador, they won't let her in. It's like, wait a minute, we got a visa to go here. They just, they just wouldn't do it. So I'm on this bus. I have all the students. Uh, three of my, um, a few of my uh, uh, employees are already gone. Uh, and now I have to leave Diana in Guatemala. And I have to leave some people with her. So it's like, great, I'm leaving you, you know, you two other people in a third world country. Who knows what's going to happen? So anyways, we have to leave her. She can't come back. She doesn't get back for a couple weeks. Uh, so I get to uh, the property where we were having this little uh, challenge and uh, uh, one of those weeks and they're camping out and all these different things. And one of the pastors was coming to visit because it was the uh, pastor's conference there at San Salvador in El Salvador. Now, I need to get the pastor a ride. <laughs> I wish I could give you more details, but I don't have time. I have to give the pastor a ride back to his hotel. Okay. Uh, can't get a ride. Uh, three of my employees are back in San Salvador. I'm stuck with, I think Elizabeth was there with me. It's like two or three of us. Finally, we get him to the hotel. We get him to the hotel and then he locks his keys in the hotel. I have to go pick up Pastor Chet at the airport and Pastor Chris is like, no, you need to stay here. I need to get the keys. Yada, yada, yada. I'm stuck. I'm sick. All these different things. So I don't know how to get to the airport. I have to leave him. I'm pulling up to pick up my friend. The only one that does need to get knows how to get to the airport. And right in front of me, this truck is driving by him, kicks up a rock, hits him in the eye. And now we can't see. And now we can't drive to the airport. And I pick him up. You got to get in the car. You got to tell me how to get there. I don't know how to get there. The whole world was crumbling right before my very eyes. Every single thing that could go wrong was going wrong. So I'm trying to get directions from my blind friend that knows how to get there. We pick up Pastor Chet uh, an hour and a half late, and I just had to laugh. I had to laugh. Here I am in this leadership position, and I have no control over what's happening. I'm completely hopeless and helpless. Other one of my employees, Dirk, he's... He's supposed to be leading. He's in America. He tore his meniscus. It's like every single thing that could go wrong went wrong. But the Lord was refining me. He was producing fruit in me. He was trying to teach me to be a leader that doesn't trust in myself, that trusts in him. Because he's the only one that has control. We hate the affliction. We hate going through it, but it's necessary for God to produce the character in us that he needs in us to be the men and women that he's called us to be. Genesis chapter 41. There's a lot more to that story. Um, maybe another time I'll share it. It's like crazy. Genesis 41 verse 53. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt ended and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. See, just as the plenty was plentiful, the famine was severe. See, the, the, the famine was bound to come. 
it wouldn't be plentiful forever. There's a season of plenty. There's a season of famine. Famine. That's just how our Christian lives go. There's balances of blessings and brutality. You never know what's going to come next. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says. This. There's, a, there's a season for everything. The season of plenty was over. Now it was the season of famine. Look at verse 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do it. Now all these countries, the world around him is coming to Joseph specifically for bread. And Pharaoh says, whatever he says to you, do. This is the exact same statement that was given to the servants at the wedding of Cana. When Jesus did his first miracle in John chapter 2, we see that the wedding had ran out of wine and Mary goes to Jesus to try to get help with the situation, knowing that he could help. And he tells, she tells the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Just do it. This also had to deal with provision. This was provision, obviously, for a wine at a wedding. This is provision for bread with Joseph's situation for the world. But it's the same statement there. In verse 56, the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands, in all the lands. The famine was so severe that they had to come to Joseph to get grain. Only through Joseph were they able to be sustained and fulfilled. Jesus, does he not say, I'm the bread of life in John chapter 6, and the whole world must come to Jesus that they may eat the bread that satisfies eternally. See, God, he used every one of Joseph's setbacks, all of his affliction, literally to save the world at that time. Joseph, had to go through an extremely difficult leadership program, but God had specific purposes in all of it. It would have been easy for Joseph to just give up, give in, say, ah, it's too much. Betrayed my my brothers? No, he presses on. Uh, Accused falsely? He presses on. Imprisoned? He presses on. Forgotten? He continues to press on. Why? I believe Joseph had so much faith in his God that he knew that he'd make all things work together for good. Despite how bad things were in the present, he knew that there were promises for the future. So he continued to push forward. He continued to press on. God is bigger than any adversity we'll ever face. I pray that we would have the heart of Joseph, that we would continue to press on, knowing that nothing goes to waste with him, and he's using everything for so much something so much greater than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter. God, so much to learn, so little time. 
God, I pray that we would view our lives in, in light of your promises, that we would recognize that there are things that you're trying to reveal uh, to us and in us, God, and and you want to you want to exalt us, but it only comes when we exalt you, Lord. And I pray that you would produce that character in us, that we would magnify and glorify you in everything we do and everything we say, and we would we would be an example, not just like Joseph, but but like you, Lord, knowing. Uh, You gave us the perfect example in the way Jesus Christ. So give us the heart to walk in that way. In your name, amen.